How's it going, all you punk rockers out there? It's time for another episode of Let's Talk Punk Rock, the show where we dive into the history of a different punk band each episode. Now, today, like last time, we are hitting a relatively more recent punk band than our first couple episodes. So if you need to scream out or feel like there's no evacuation, then stand up and fight while we all stay gold. That's right, everyone. We're doing the unseen. Now, The Unseen are another one of those punk bands that fall all over the spectrum of who's this band, never heard of them, all the way to how have you never heard of this band. My first introduction to them was from a couple punks I hung out with in high school wearing their shirts. After I was told to check them out, I ordered their Totally Unseen record from some record store online and I was hooked. Okay, so let's get into it. The Unseen, like most bands, didn't start out as what they are today. In fact, they were originally called The Extinct. They formed in Hingham, Massachusetts in 1993 with Mark Civitaris on drums, Trip Underwood on bass, Paul Morey on guitar, and a guy I could only find referred to as Jaws as lead vocals. Let's start with Jaws because he drops from the story pretty quick. Jaws was a little older than the rest of the band and got his nickname from supposedly biting another kid's nose while he was in a detention center. In Trip Underwood's book, So This Is Readin', Jaws is described as a maniac. He was loud, obnoxious, and loved to get attention. Good or bad attention didn't matter. One story even has him waving a machete around and yelling at a Denny's parking lot until the police are called. He's also described as a compulsive liar, which only got worse when he quit taking his medication. Now, we all know a liar and probably one who lies a lot, but this guy's lies pushed the boundary into straight-up bizarre, like dealing with literal vampire women bizarre. I don't think many of us have had to deal with that extreme of making up stories since we were in grade school and a friend swore he dated a supermodel or knew the president or something. Anyway... The band started getting nervous about Jaws after he quit taking his medication. They worried what he might do while they were on stage and he had all that attention. So, they parted ways with the dude. They made up a story about how they all needed to devote more time to their schoolwork and couldn't focus on the band. Jaws bought it and no harm was done. After Jaws was out, they needed a new singer and recruited Mark Carlson. Carlson was a hockey player who had inherited a lot of punk memorabilia from his older brother. This made him a decent fit for the band because they already shared a love for a lot of the same punk bands and carried that similar inspiration for the music. With the addition of Mark Carlson, the first iteration of The Unseen was born. With their new singer, The Unseen played their first live show. They played what was called Hagapalooza. This was essentially a backyard party with kegs and skate ramps, but it was a first show and worked in their favor despite not really being all that good yet. Unfortunately, Paul Morey got a little too into the skateboarding thing and the chicks that come with it, and he dropped from the band shortly after. Needing a new guitar player, they brought in Phil Riley. Here's a fun game for this episode. Try and make some sort of web of members dropping off and coming in. It gets a little hectic, but such is the life of a band starting out. With Morey gone and Riley in, the band eventually plays their first indoor show at a dive bar called The Approach. At the time of their show, this place has not had an update to the decor since probably the late 80s. It is very set for hair bands. 
Despite a decent turnout for the show, the majority of people who showed up to see them play were under 21. This meant that The Approach took a bigger cut of the door money to make up for their losses on drink sales, leaving The Unseen with little cash for their performance. After the show, they realized that Riley's guitar is just a little too metal and not enough punk for what they're getting at, and Riley is dismissed from the band. After a few practices, they bring in Scott Hadia. No idea if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, and I'm sorry if I'm not. He has a little more talent on the guitar than their past guitar players and can play more chords. In 1995, The Unseen record their first 7-inch. The name of this 7-inch is Too Young to Know, Too Reckless to Care. The recording for this is paid for with money a friend of the band got as part of an inheritance after his dad died. Makes you wonder what he would have thought if he knew that money was headed to record a young punk band in the mid-90s. They eventually get to play their first Boston show at a place called The Causeway. Playing a Boston show is a pretty big deal for these guys, but there's a slight problem. Mark Carlson, the lead singer, can't make the show due to a hockey game that he had to play. Trip Underwood steps in as singer for this show. The show may not have been the greatest, but it was definitely one more stepping stone to success. It also made the band reconsider Carlson as their lead singer. You can't have a lead singer who puts hockey above the band. Carlson was out of the band and the role of singer was split between the two original members, Underwood and Civitaris. Complicating things, Scott Hadia was sent away to work on a golf course for the summer by his parents. Paul Russo is brought in to take his place while he is away. Russo was a longtime friend of Trip Underwood. He had already been hanging around their practices, which helped to quicken the process of getting him in. With Russo in the band now, the unseen starts to pick up steam. They are playing more shows than before. Scott returns after his summer of golf course work and the band decides to keep Russo in as a rhythm guitarist and sharing the duties of vocals. Only being able to get their music out to those living nearby, the band decided to reach out to labels for support. They sent out their demo to a number of labels and eventually hear back from VML Records in Chicago. They agreed to put out the band's EPs. In 1996, they released two EPs within months of each other. These are Protect and Serve and Raise Your Finger, Raise Your Fist. All the songs for both these EPs had been recorded in the same recording session. This is what made it possible to get them out within months of each other that year. With a somewhat solid lineup, plenty of shows under their belt, and two new EPs, the band was ready to try their hand at touring. They began by touring just around the New England area and selling the EPs out of Mark's trunk. Often, they would show up to shows with nothing but the merch in the trunk of the car and their guitars. The rest of the equipment they used would be borrowed from other bands playing that night. The following year, in 1997, they record their first full-length album, Lower Class Crucifixion is Made. It has a real raw street punk feel being their first album. Listen to the guitar skills in Alone. It also includes a slightly out-of-place cover of Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison. 
The cover starts out pretty similar to the original, but then bursts into their punk style around the minute 15 mark. Just like This album is recorded in the basement of a guy I've only seen written about as Tarbox. Tarbox is a former rocker from the 80s. The first night of recording with Tarbox, he gets so drunk that they eventually have to call it a night because he can't see the mixing board anymore. Despite this, the album does get made and the band goes on tour opening for Toxic Narcotic. They buy an old van for this tour and even hire their friend Brian Chainsaw Riley as a roadie. The tour, for the most part, goes well with only minor issues. According to Trip Underwood in his book, this is mainly finding a sanitary place to use the restroom. Like we heard in the last episode, bands like Rancid, Green Day, and The Offspring are really starting to take off around this time. Punk is starting to gain in popularity. This is good news for the Unseen because it makes it easier for them to book more shows. Sometime around 97, they go on a short tour with One Way System. Now, there's a place called The Pipeline in Newark that they played on this tour. Apparently, during the show, a group of skinheads decide to show up. This did not end well as they got a little too excited and a fight broke out between the punks and skins during One Way System set. Trip Underwood believes he sees Chainsaw being beaten and decides to intervene. He takes off his bullet belt and smashes it over the skinhead's head. Now, I don't know if you've ever worn one of those things or not, but other than being a pain to keep on and always pulling your pants down, they are incredibly flimsy. If you have worn a bullet belt, you've probably already guessed what happens here. The belt basically just shatters into a bunch of pieces, and the skinhead is not only unharmed, but he's got a new target. A new target named Trip. Now, Trip describes this guy as a goliath in his book, but fortunately for him, a bouncer named Junior intervenes. Junior was also a skinhead, but one that Trip had talked to previously at shows and thankfully took his job of keeping the band safe seriously. Oh, and Chainsaw was totally fine, by the way. He was at the bar chatting up some girl. Who knows who the other guy getting beat up was. Unfortunately, while on tour, Paul Russo's grandfather passed away. This was a blow to him having not been there because of the tour. Along with this, Brent was climbing in Boston. Russo had to move back to Maine with his mother. Because of this distance, he began to miss practices and occasionally shows as well. Blank77 contacted Russo about joining them on a two-month tour as their drummer, and he accepted. Paul Russo quit the unseen. Blank77 was able to pay him more, and he would no longer have to lug his own equipment around. After Russo left the band, there was a slight shuffle. Brian Chainsaw Riley was brought in on guitar, and Scott Hadia stepped back to drums. This wasn't exactly ideal as Chainsaw couldn't make the weekday practices, but the band got by. They would practice as a three-piece during weekdays. Chainsaw had another fairly serious issue. He liked to drink. A lot. He would often get too drunk before a show. This is sometimes fun to watch, but not necessarily the best for playing music. Scott and Tripp wouldn't drink much before shows, or even at all sometimes. Mark didn't even drink at all at that time. This kept them sharp enough to play their instruments on time with one another. Drinks could come after the show. 
Chainsaw, on the other hand, would sometimes get so drunk he couldn't read the set list. This resulted in him occasionally playing a different song than the rest of the band. A psycho would go with the band confronting him and telling him how he was messing everything up that they had achieved so far. Chainsaw would apologize. Not long after, he'd be back to his drunken ways. Chainsaw only ever did one tour with the Unseen. It lasted about three weeks. He was apparently quite the character to have on tour, as you can imagine. Antics included wandering around nude in someone's house where they were letting the band crash or skinny dipping in their pool. He also got a kick out of messing with the straight-edge band that they were touring with. This would include jumping on them while they slept or ruining any chances of hooking up with girls on tour. I'm sure we all have a story of a friend like this. After the tour, the band had another serious talk with Chainsaw about how he was messing up their success with his excessive drinking and goofing off. He seemed to listen this time and got serious about playing. Around this time, Russo returns from his tour with Blank 77 and once back in the unseen. Now we have an awkward moment. Do you keep Chainsaw, who helped out when they were left high and dry, or let Russo back in? Well, they decide to do both. They let Russo back in and keep Chainsaw as a third guitarist and vocals. This lended to a bit of a band gimmick. They would switch their instruments and who would sing every few songs. As fun as this is to watch, it does slow a show down tremendously though. It also royally pissed off any sound guys working at the venues. As it turns out, being a five-piece band is difficult. It slowed down shows and slowed down the writing process for new songs. The band had to make a decision, and they ended up dropping Chainsaw. He was upset about it, but understood. With Chainsaw gone, they started buckling down and writing music again. They got enough for an album and headed back to Tarbox for another recording. Tarbox had quit drinking, and this helped the recording process go a lot smoother and faster. In 1999, So This Is Freedom is released. The album starts out with the track, What Are You Gonna Do?, giving the classic Think For Yourself message. The album finishes with a cover like last time, only instead of Poison, this time it's Michael Jackson's Beat It. promote the album, they go on their first full U.S. tour with the Casualties and Violent Society. Each band has one roadie with them. This makes a total of 15 punks moving together, which, as you can imagine, did not make it easy to find places to crash after shows. One notable story here has a kid who offered up his home to all 15 after a show. He assured the band that his parents were gone because his mom was in the hospital and his stepdad stayed there on weekends to be with her. They gladly accept and pick out their places to crash. They are awoken the next morning by this kid's outraged stepfather 
who had come home to 15 smelly punk rockers in his home. He's yelling and holding a baseball bat. As it turns out, the stepson has a drug problem and had been thrown out weeks before. Funny detail to leave out. Everyone bails, and on the way out, they accidentally smash this guy's mailbox. Now, I'm sure everyone breathed a sigh of relief once they were out of there. But then Scott realizes that he left all of his stuff at that house. That's everything he brought with him on tour. They have no choice but to go back. When they arrive, the police are there. The stepdad loses his mind again, and these guys explain the whole story to the officer. The officer lets them off the hook since they did not know they were trespassing and clearly only broke the mailbox to escape from an angry man swinging a baseball bat. Moving on with the tour, not much noteworthy happens until they come up to the border of California. They had all been excited to play in California where they heard the punk scene was a lot stronger. Following the trend of bad luck, the van breaks down. They have to be towed to a garage in Arizona. Now, it's not legal for all five of these guys to be in the cab of the tow truck. The driver suggests that two of them hide in the van. This way he can plead ignorance if the police get involved and everyone can stick together. They get the van fixed and head back out to play a show in San Diego. Fate again hits them and they are late for the show, which apparently is a huge success for the other bands. They move on and play the next show in Santa Cruz. This one is not nearly as successful. They play at a local teen center with a smaller audience. Some skinheads show up looking for trouble, but leave due to being outnumbered. This still leaves a negative vibe in the air during the show. After that, they are all invited back to a small apartment to crash. With not much to do in the apartment, they head out in search of a bridge they heard about. What bridge, you ask? The one from that crazy scene in The Lost Boys. And if you haven't seen The Lost Boys, go check it out. It's great. They all go to the bridge, recreate the scene from the movie, and then scale a wall into an abandoned amusement park nearby. Turns out this park isn't abandoned at all, just closed. They get spotted by security guards. They do what most of us would do in that situation. Scatter like cockroaches when the lights come on. Surprisingly, only two of the 15 are caught. The merch guy for the casualties and the merch girl for violent society. They get off pretty easy. They're given a $25 citation and told not to do anything like that again while they're in town. After the tour finishes, they take a much needed break. Eventually, they get back to practicing and decide to book their own tour. This is their first headlining tour. It lasts about two weeks and rolls through the south. It's not great. They bring the vigilantes with them on tour, but they only get to play two shows. On the third day of the tour, their car gets totaled. Turns out they decided to let one of the band members without a license drive. They were following the Unseen to a pizza place. The Unseen made an illegal left turn, and the vigilantes followed. The Unseen made it through the turn. The vigilantes did not. No worries, though. Nobody was injured, but it did suck. Adding to the bad omens of the tour, the Unseen's roadie gets the mumps. They make him sit in the back of the van away from everyone else. Most of the shows are flops, with hardly anyone coming to see them perform. In January of 2000, as they are headed to their last show of the tour, their van breaks down on the highway. The transmission is shot, and it's going to take a couple days to get the parts to fix it. Eventually it is fixed, and they head east to get back home. Bad luck strikes again, and the van breaks down again. They call the mechanic and eventually get him to admit that he must have done something wrong. He offers to fix it for free. They tell him where it is and to have it towed back to him. They say they'll come back to get it when it's fixed. Truth is, 
they have no intention of coming back to get that bad luck van. They rent a U-Haul to make the last stretch of the trip home. A coin is flipped to see who sits up front, and Tripp and Josh, the roadie with mumps, end up having to ride in the back. In June of that year, they release Totally Unseen, The Best of the Unseen. It's a best-of compilation that they release in Europe. For the next tour, they set their eyes on Japan. This tour is set up by a friend of theirs named Nori. Punk music and fashion apparently had a pretty big following back in Japan, so Nori would come to the States a few times a year to buy punk clothing and records to sell back home. Along for the ride is some guy who Mark Civitaris found online who offered to film the entire trip for them. He even offered to pay his own way. He just wanted to see Japan and tag along. Now, I don't feel like I need to say much about trusting people on the internet, but man was bringing this guy a mistake. He doesn't steal from them or anything like that. He's just really annoying. He immediately starts bugging them on their plane ride over after getting too drunk. They reach Japan and take a train ride to where they will be staying. They all go out drinking that night. The next morning, who could have predicted, camera guy pisses himself in his sleep. This is a small apartment that they're all crashing in, and this guy has just urinated on the floor. They promptly kick him awake and make him clean up his mess. It's after this that he realizes he left his camera at the bar the night before. That was literally his only job, so he has to go out and buy a brand new camera. The tourist traveled in two small cars, one with and one without air conditioning. Camera guy gets so annoying that Nori finally snaps at him. The other touring band threatened to drop off the tour if camera guy doesn't leave. And so, they drop him off at a bus stop, tell him to go back to Tokyo, and get a flight home. After the Japan tour, they head back home for another rest. They move from AF Records to BYO Records. Now, BYO Records are run by Mark and Sean Stern of Youth Brigade. They have some better experience on how to effectively run a band. They start giving the unseen pointers. For starters, they help them get the band listed as an official business. This is to prevent them from being audited later on down the road. They sent them money to help get better recordings for their next album, and pushed them to get touring as soon as that next album comes out. They then go on tour with Anti-Flag. Trip Underwood is unable to do the first part of the tour because he's finishing up his student teaching to get his elementary education degree. Their friend Pete takes over on bass while Trip is out. When Trip returns, he's greeted with the news that the tour has been a success so far. They're selling CDs and shirts, and kids are coming up to them to tell them how great they are. This is all in 2001 when the anger and the truth comes out. On this album is their good friend Chainsaw for the song No Evacuation. Chainsaw had written the song, so they brought him back in for that. Quick Rest follows the Anti-Flag tour, but the Unseen are soon back out headlining their own tour to promote the album. Upgrading their travel, they have now purchased a box truck to tour in. They have more successful shows, less excessive drinking, and the box truck to sleep in. Things are going better now. From here, they get invited to play at the Holidays in the Sun Festival in England. They are one of the few younger bands playing this festival and only one of two American bands playing. 
the other being their good friends, the Casualties. They arrive in England for this festival, but don't have any other shows lined up. This makes it difficult to make any money for anything to do. They get an old friend of theirs to help them set up a couple shows just outside of England. One day, with little else to do, they head out in search of the King's Road. If you're not familiar, the King's Road was a place during the late 70s and 80s that was pretty big for punk rock. It wouldn't be uncommon to run into bands like The Clash or The Sex Pistols there. Time changes things, however, and the Unseen were disappointed to see how the King's Road had changed since the 80s. Defeated by this, they dipped into a McDonald's for a bite to eat. Amazingly, though, they did run into Mick Jones at that McDonald's, who wished them luck and took a quick photo with them. Just in case you're unaware, Mick Jones was the lead guitar for The Clash. Pretty big deal. They went on and played the shows that had been set up for them. It went well. They played the festival, which also went well. Unfortunately, with little performances, though, they actually ended up losing money on this trip. In 2002, The Unseen landed a tour with Dropkick Murphys. They were originally going on tour with Lars Fredrickson and the Bastards, but due to an injury, Lars had to drop out. This opened the spot for The Unseen to step in. Not a whole lot of crazy stories were found from this tour except for when Dropkick Murphys were slated to play a folk festival in Amsterdam. They were able to get The Unseen added to the bill. Being a street punk band, playing a folk festival with a major crowd made them rather nervous though. To remedy this, they headed out to find an Amsterdam coffee house. And yes, they sell more than coffee. And so the band purchased a joint each to calm their nerves. After burning that one, they purchased another before realizing that the marijuana was a lot stronger than they had expected. They were now far too high. They managed to make it back to the show 10 minutes before they were set to go on. Fortunately, the show was a success. After the show had finished, they were approached by some of the members of Dropkick Murphys. It would seem that these guys had purchased a week's worth of pot, not realizing that they would be crossing the border that night and couldn't bring it with them. Well, a week's worth was a lot for the band, and so they enlisted the Unseen's help in smoking it. After a few hours, the deed was done. When they made it back from the Dropkick tour, they took another rest. With the success they were having, they were finding it harder and harder to slip back into normal life when they got home. Jobs weren't as easy to hang on to, girlfriends weren't either. Waking up in the same town each night was even odd. Paul Russo was really struggling with the band life dilemma. He complained about having to play drums for part of their set, and so they brought in their friend Pat to fill in there. Paul would play rhythm instead. In 2003, we see the release of Explode. The song False Hope has some big success here. It wins Fuse TV's Oven Fresh Award, beating out G-Unit and Incubus. It gets put on rotation for Headbangers Ball as well as a local Boston radio station, WFNX. Here's a clip of this song to give you an idea of what was getting so much play. From here, they go on tour with the Forgotten. A prank war ensues. Trip Underwood mentioned some of what this entailed in his book, but it seemed to include things like leaving a dead fish on one band's radiator or dumping hundreds of crickets and a hamster in the other band's truck. Classic annoyances. 
After this tour ends, Paul Russo starts having issues with the band again. He tells them that he no longer wants to play in a punk band and wants to try something different musically. He leaves the band and goes on to lead the strings. Mark moves from drums to vocals, and Pat Melzard is now the full-time drummer. They go on to play a portion of Van's Warp Tour. Somewhere around this time, Ian Galloway is also brought in to play rhythm with backing vocals. In 2004, they win Best Punk Band at the Boston Music Awards. They join Warp Tour again for the 0405 run, and somewhere around 2005, they switch from BYO Records to Hellcat Records. This again will give them better distribution and get their name out there more. In 2005, we see their first Hellcats Records album release. It is State of Discontent. It is produced by none other than Ken Casey of the Dropkick Murphys and mixed by Brett Gurowitz of Bad Religion. Sometime around 2006, Ian Galloway leaves the band and Johnny Thayer is brought in for rhythm and backing vocals. Finally, in 2007, we see the release of Internal Salvation. This is their last released album I've seen come from them. If you check them out, they don't really tour anymore and I'm not sure what their status would be. They do pop up sporadically to do shows from time to time, so if they're near you, you might as well go see them because who knows if or when they'll come around again. Like most punk bands that release music videos these days or have any glimpse of moderate success, they've been accused of selling out, but personally, I wouldn't say so. Alright, that does it for The Unseen. If you enjoyed this or just want to find out more, I do highly recommend getting a hold of So This Is Readin' by Trip Underwood. I've probably enjoyed reading that more than any of the other books I've read researching this podcast so far. And a very special thank you to all you punk rockers out there. And hey, if you like the show and want to help out a little, leave a five-star review. It makes it easier for others to find the show. You could also just tell your friends to check it out. Thanks again to Granddaddy Long Greg for the cover art. If you're a fan of that logo, head on over to TeePublic for some of our merch. That is also a huge help for the show. I'm a one-person operation here, and every little bit helps to keep the lights on. The link to that is in the show notes. Again, like I said, leave a five-star review where you can. Also make suggestions of other bands to cover in future episodes. If you don't feel like leaving a review, or already have, you can also reach me on Twitter at Let's Talk Punk. That's let's underscore talk underscore punk. I can also be reached at my email, letstalkpunkrock at gmail.com. All one word there. That is also the best place to contact me if you see I got something wrong in the episode. I'm sure that will happen eventually, and I'd like to make sure I get it corrected. Now, one of my favorite parts of all this is hearing your own personal punk rock stories. Did you meet an idol, attend, or play a crazy show? What was your introduction to the punk world? Let me know your stories. Those can be emailed to me as well at letstalkpunkrock at gmail.com. I may even end up reading them on an episode sometime in the future. Okay, last part of the episode. Hints to our next episode's band. Alright, they are known as an anarcho-punk band. They were formed in 1977. They have an iconic band logo that has sparked some controversy in the past. And Jeffrey Lewis did an entire album of anti-folk style covers of their songs. Think you know who it is? Let me know on social media. Otherwise, you'll just have to wait for the next episode of Let's Talk Punk Rock. Alright, that's it. I'll catch you on the flip side.